I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter in chapter 5 is where we'll be for the preaching of God's Word this morning. And uh, again, let me say thank you for letting me come. I, I would say a, a word regarding um, kind of my story as you're turning to 1 Peter 5. Just to give it to you in brief, it'll help you as well kind of understand a little bit where I'm coming from with the message this morning. Uh, but I was raised as a pastor's kid. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and uh, he was uh, originally a farmer in the Amro and Oshkosh area, but got saved out of Lutheranism there in his late 30s uh, due to the death of one of my sisters. This was before I was born. And uh, because of the death of my sister, he sought the Lord and was born again. And uh, shortly after that, he was approached by some people who went to the church that now is Wildwood Baptist Church in Oshkosh. And that's where he ended up going to church, getting baptized, getting grounded in the things of the Lord. And it wasn't long after that that he went into the ministry and uh, became a pastor himself. And I was born after that. And so he was in the ministry when I was born. And uh, I was saved at an early age, called to preach at an early age. I can remember a pastor friend of my dad's preaching from the book of Acts when Barnabas and Saul were called out by the Holy Spirit. I felt the Lord tug on my heart as a very little boy. And ever since that time, I've known for sure that I was going to be in the ministry. Uh, eventually, my dad ended up at the church that I now pastor, Madison Baptist Temple, it was called at that time, now Madison Baptist Church. So I grew up at the church that I now pastor. And I had a privilege to, to be with my dad and really watch my dad in the ministry. And I appreciate my father. He took the time, knowing that I was going to be in the ministry, to train me and mentor me all of my life. Everything he did, it felt like anyway, I was included on. He took me visiting with him. He let me sit and uh, sit in the living room with him as he talked to missionaries and pastors. And he took me to the nursing home. And when I got to be in high school, he sent me to the nursing home and sent me to make visits of shut-ins and things like that when I could drive. And all of that gave me some pastoral responsibilities as a 16, 17-year-old. And that just helped me. Uh, simple things that he knew I could accomplish, but it helped me a lot. And I appreciate his mentorship. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, when I was 19, I stayed for a year after high school, helped my dad out. But then I went to Bible college, went to a very uh, conservative Bible college and one where uh, we were taught to work hard. And I appreciate the emphasis that the Bible college had on working hard. And I also appreciate the fact that the Bible college I went to had an emphasis on it's not about how hard you work. It is about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that was a blessing. Men like John or Rice and, and uh, men like that were lifted up to us as men that you wanted to emulate and read after, and the emphasis on the Holy Spirit was a blessing. But at the same time, along with that, there was a knowledge that, okay, it's not about flesh and works and just working hard and getting it done, and yet there was almost another flip side of it where we were expected to put in a lot of fleshly effort, and there was a lot of pressure about numbers and things like that. And uh, underlying it all, there was a pressure to perform and I don't blame the teachers or the staff or faculty of the place where I graduated from. They were doing their best and really were a great blessing to me. I've learned so much from them and continue to respect them to this day. But I don't know if it was them or me or a combination, but I came out with very much a pressure to perform. I ended up eventually, after a couple of different ministries in Arizona on the border with Mexico and starting a bilingual work there uh, in, the, in the city of Nogales, right on the border with Mexico. And uh, it did not take long for me to recognize what 
uh, the Lord already knew, and that is that I was completely incapable of doing anything in the Lord's work uh, in any strength of my own. No matter how much I worked, no matter how much effort I put in, uh, I could not get much started there. And uh, it was uh, after about five years there that the Lord opened up the door where my home church asked me to come and be their pastor. And so I've been there now for about 10 years. And my, how the Lord has blessed. Madison is a rough place, a very liberal place. But one of the things I appreciate about it is you know where you stand with people. And when you walk up to them and you try to give them the gospel, they'll let you know if they don't want you there. And uh, that may discourage some, but it actually, if you look at it the right way, is an encouragement because you know where you stand with people. And you just say, okay, well, thank you for the opportunity, and you move on to the next one and trust that the Lord will work. And I appreciate that once people do get saved in Madison, Wisconsin, for the most part, they are sold out for the Lord. And I pastor great people, not perfect people, but great people. I wouldn't trade my church for any church. Our people love the Lord. They love their pastor, and it's a blessing to be their pastor, and I'm thankful for that. Well, one of the things the Lord taught me in all of that, and the reason I share that with you is, the Lord, as I was there in Arizona spending many hours crying out to the Lord and praying and fasting and seeking God's face, the Lord reminded me that I was to keep in the forefront of my mind, what is my purpose? Specifically, as a pastor, what is my purpose? Put it a different way, what does success look like? Is it a large ministry? Is it a ministry where people attend all four services regularly? Is it a ministry where many missionaries are supported and the tithes and the offerings are large? Is it uh, success in the eyes of my peers as other pastors? What does success look like? And of course, I imagine that any one of you here could give me the correct answer of what success in pastoral ministry looks like. But let's look at God's word and find out what God specifically says. 1 Peter chapter 5, and of course the Apostle Peter is writing here. He's writing to uh, the uh, people who have been scattered because of persecution. And he takes a moment in chapter 5 to speak specifically to elders, or we would call them pastors. The elders which are among you... I exhort, he says in verse 1, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Those four verses really give us the key to what success in pastoral ministry looks like. We're going to look at a couple of things specifically in detail. But before we do, let me just say that the Apostle Peter, if you can remember that before the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, he took time to ask Peter, lovest thou me? You remember that story, right? In the end of John. And as he got done with the three times that he asked Peter if he loved him, he then says to Peter, in each of those cases, I want you to feed my sheep or my lambs. He was, I believe, giving Peter's ministry to him. He was letting him know, this is your specific calling. And if you remember, Peter looks at John and says, well, what about this guy? And of course, the Lord Jesus, in my words, basically says, that's none of your business. 
It's not important what I want John to do. It's important what I want you to do. And so Peter was given a direct calling for this type of ministry by the Lord Jesus. And it makes sense that as he's nearing the end of his life and writing to these dispersed brethren, and he takes the opportunity to speak to the elders, the pastors, and say, let me remind you, pastors, of what your job is. I also am a pastor. I know what the responsibility is, and I want to share that with you. And he says, first of all, feed the flock, which is exactly what Jesus had told him to do. He said to take the oversight, or that was part of feeding the flock, was taking the oversight thereof. He mentions to them that they're uh, not to do it by constraint, not because you're being forced, but rather willingly. In other words, love them and care for them. Feed them because you care for them. And he says, don't do it for filthy lucre. We might say money or wealth or riches. Don't do it for those things. Rather, have a ready mind. Do it whether you're paid or not. Have that mentality about you, that you are there and you're going to feed people. If you get a paid position to do it, wonderful. If not, it's all right. I'm going to do this. I have a ready mind. And then, of course, in verse 3, the very important part, which is don't be a lord over God's heritage. Don't do it out of a desire for position and authority and being able to tell other people what to do. Rather, do it as an example. And then, of course, in verse 4, he promises them that they will, if they fulfill that, be rewarded by the Lord Jesus himself. And may I say this morning before we pray and begin the message, that's the emblem of success. If after the end of your ministry, if the Lord Jesus can come to you and give you, as Peter said here, a crown of glory that fadeth not away, you will be able to say at that point, I was successful as a pastor. As a minister of Jesus Christ, I was successful. Let's pray and we'll get into a specific message about this from this passage. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach to these young men and young ladies. And I do thank you for them and the ministry that you've given to them. Lord, I know that you have a specific place of ministry for each one of them. Some will probably be well known. Others will be obscure. But Lord, we know that none of those things are important. What is important is that when we stand before you, that you will be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And Lord, as this passage tells us to give us a crown of glory, Lord, I would ask that you would enable me that I might receive that crown of glory that fadeth not away. Lord, I want to hear you say, well done, when I stand before you. And I know that, Lord, in my own strength, I'm not worthy to even hear even the beginning of that phrase from you. But, oh, Lord, I pray that by your grace, because of who you are, you would allow me to hear that. And then, Lord, not only me, but each one of these young men and these young ladies here, that, Lord, they could fulfill the ministry that you've given to them, that you would be pleased with them. Lord, I pray that you would use this message as a help in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen. As I began in the state of Arizona there, struggling in the ministry to look for what does success look like, the Lord prompted me to look at the pastoral epistles, as we call them in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and then Titus. And as I began to read through and study First and Second Timothy and then Titus, one of the things that stood out to me is that as the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy and Titus, he did not tell them or remind them of the things that I would have if I were writing to them. 
He did not encourage them in the certain areas of ministry that were emphasized to me when I was studying for the ministry, or more likely it was that they were not the things that I'd put in my own mind as, if I'm going to be successful, these are the things I need to do. Rather, there were very simple things in First and Second Timothy and Titus that they were told that lined right up with what it says here in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4. That there is a harmony between Peter and Paul as they were led by the Spirit of God to write to these pastors. There was a harmony among them about what it took to be successful in ministry. And I want to share two main points or two main things with you this morning that I believe will help you and me to be successful in the pastorate. Some of you will be pastors, by the way. Some of you will be evangelists. Some of you will be missionaries, Christian school teachers, whatever. You'll need to know these things regardless of what ministry you have. First of all, Peter says to the elders here that they are to feed the flock of God. And may I remind you this morning that your responsibility as a pastor is to feed the flock of God. If you are an evangelist and you go to different ministries I want to encourage you to encourage that pastor to remember that his job is to feed the flock of God. If you're a missionary and you're on the field starting churches and you're working with nationals and you're training young men to be pastors in whatever country God calls you to, remind those young men that God has given them a responsibility to feed the flock of God. Keeping your place in 1 Peter 5, turn over with me to 1 Peter 2. And I know that you know the answer already, but as you turn to 1 Peter 2, we are given in an earlier part of this book the answer to what the food looks like with which we are to feed God's people. 1 Peter 2 says in verse number 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. There's a little glimpse there as to what spiritual food is for us. It's called the sincere milk right there. And that's because he was referencing them as little children. And just like a mother would give her child milk so that that child would grow. And by the way, she would give it to that child in a sincere form. The word sincere doesn't mean that your motives are right. It means pure unadulterated. That's what they need. They don't need anything else. I remember one time when we were in Mexico, as we, were, we did an internship in Mexico for a couple years before we were in Arizona, and I was uh, driving a bus picking up kids for a church service, and we stopped at a house, and the workers were going into the house to get the kids, and I looked out, and out on the porch was a mother feeding her child, and the child was probably a year and a half, and she took out a bottle of Coke put it in the baby bottle, put the cap on the baby bottle, and gave it to the 18-month-old or however old it was. And I said, God designed children to be raised on sincere milk, right? Unadulterated. That's what God designed them. Not Coca-Cola, all right? Some of you could learn from that, right? But listen, it's not just that it needs to be the simple things of God's word, although it's good to be simple. Nothing wrong with being simple. But later on, as we know from Corinthians, there's a time to even move to meat, isn't there? 
But we know that the food that we need to give them, the feeding that we need to give is from God's word. Whether that's the milk of the word or the meat of the word, it needs to be God's word. So as you pastor, may I remind you, your primary responsibility is to give your people the book. To be in the book, to study the book, to know the book, to spend time and effort and energy and prayer weekly and several times a week getting into the book and reading and knowing and studying and learning how to present God's word in a way that God's people can benefit from. Just like a mother who cares for her children doesn't just take a raw steak and slop it on the plate in front of her children. She takes the time and the effort and the energy to learn how best to prepare that meat, how to make it tasty, how to make it tender, how to make it easily palatable. And then if she has a teenager, she might take a steak and plop it in front of the teenager. And all the men said, amen, right? But if she has a two-year-old or a three-year-old, she doesn't plop a steak in front of that three-year-old, even if it's been well-prepared, even if it's tender. What does she do? She cuts it up into small, bite-sized pieces that the child won't choke on. See, there's effort, there's care, there's preparation involved. And pastors, your primary responsibility is to get into the book and prepare the book to feed your people. More than other things. And there are many things as a pastor that you will be called to do. And may I remind you, you are not as a pastor an activities director for your church. That is not your primary job. Your primary job is to feed the people. Your primary job is not to uh, make sure that the church is clean, although you ought to do that, right? Uh, your primary job is not to uh, go to preacher's meetings, although there's a time and a place for that. But your primary job, the one thing you cannot neglect to do is feed the flock of God. And the reason is, is because there is a need for growth. Let me give you another reason why. It's because false doctrine abounds. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter number 4. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture. Most of them will be in 1 and 2 Timothy or perhaps Titus. We'll look in a couple other places as well. But I want to show you that one of the reasons why your job is to feed the flock of God as a pastor is because false doctrine abounds. 1 Timothy 4, verse number 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to, notice this, seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils. Satan is alive and well and working hard to seduce people to believe false doctrine. Verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, they lie knowingly. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Skip down with me if you would to verse 6. Notice this wording. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. False doctrine abounds because there are evil spirits going around seducing people to believe false doctrines. And there are men who will stand up behind a pulpit and knowingly lie to people. And that blows my mind. I can't fathom that. But their conscience is seared, the Bible says. But may I remind you that at verse number 6, Paul says to Timothy here, if you will remind the brethren, specifically Timothy was helping the elders that he was encouraging, that it was their job to 
preach the word. And he was reminding them, don't give heed to these seducing spirits. And Paul says to Timothy, if you'll do this, you will be a good minister. He doesn't say if you teach those men how to run a thousand. He doesn't say if you'll teach those men how to have a good building program. He doesn't say if you'll teach those men how to have the best activities or you know, the finest looking church or this thing or that thing, then you'll be a good minister. He says if you'll remind them that they are to teach people sound doctrine and to avoid those seducing spirits, if you'll remind those elders that that's their job, then you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And then I want to encourage you to let go of all the pressures, whether they be internal or external, that people put on you that are apart from preaching the word of God. And remember, your job as a pastor is to feed the flock of God. And Satan will try to get you on every other rabbit trail. Why? Because he has seducing spirits and he wants people involved in false doctrine. And your job is to preach true doctrine so that people will grow but with a sincere milk of the word. Let me give you another reason why your job is to feed the flock. Turn with me over to Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2. Titus chapter number 2 and verse, well, let's just look at uh, verse 1. We'll kind of skip through the whole chapter here. But I want you to see that people need you to feed them with the word because godly living is not automatic. Look with me at chapter 2 and verse 1 of Titus. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Notice verse 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Uh, look down, if you would, then at verse number 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Skip down to verse number 15. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. You see, those things that are listed in Titus 2, what the young men and the aged men, what the young women and the aged women are supposed to do, what the servants are supposed to do, how we are to remember that we are saved so that we would live a godly life and be saved unto good works. All of these things are to be brought before our people on a regular basis and to remind them of these things. Why? Because it's not natural for us to remember these things. It's not natural for us to live our life automatically godly, even though we're saved. Even though the Holy Spirit of God remind, or resides within, it's not natural. I have to be brought before the Word of God constantly, and so do you, and so do the people that I pastor, and the people that you will pastor, to be taken before the Word of God and reminded, change your life here. Don't do this. Say this. Act like this, this part over here. Remember godliness, remember holiness. We have to be brought before the word of God constantly. Why? Because our sinful flesh that we still work with and in 
is dragging us the other way. And so God ordained that pastors would be there to feed the flock of God, to remind them that you cannot just go with the flow. You need to go against the flow by the power of the Spirit of God using the Word of God to allow you to live a holy life. I would also point out to you in Titus 2, we didn't read the verse, but he even references there that we are to be looking for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You're to remind your people that they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday and give an account for their life. I heard a pastor one time say this, and it stuck with me, and it's, it's been something that has helped me a lot. He said, I want, when I get before the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm there, and he said, I don't know if I'll get to see my people go in before the judgment seat and give an account for their life, but he said, I can imagine that maybe I would be outside of the room, and one by one, the church people that God gave me to pastor would go in alone before the judgment seat. And they would give an account for their life. And he said, I imagine in my mind, I want each one of them to come out after their judgment to look me in the eye, shake my hand and say, Pastor, thank you for what you taught me. Thank you for how you reminded me that this day was coming. Thank you, Pastor, that you brought before me the word of God. It went really well for me in there. Thank you. He said, my worst nightmare is that at that time, my people would come out of the judgment seat and say, Pastor, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you remind me? Pastor, I sat and listened to your sermons week after week after week. You never reminded me that this day was coming. Yes, it was in God's word, but it was your responsibility to bring it before my mind constantly. He said, that would be a nightmare to me. I'm reminded of that often, and I hope you will be reminded of that often. You need to feed the flock of God because it's not natural for them to live a godly life, and they will give an account someday. Turn with me to one more scripture, and we'll move to the second point. 2 Timothy chapter number 2 is where I want you to turn next. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, and we'll look at verse 23. We're seeing here that we need to feed the flock because there's a need for growth, because false doctrine abounds, because godly living is not automatic, and then fourth, because God may use it to grant them repentance. Look with me at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Let me stop there. We're going to look at verse 24 in a moment. But may I tell you that that verse has always been true. It's in God's word. But I don't know that there has ever been a day where the verse has seemed more true than this day and age in which we are in. I can't speak for every church, and I know every church has a personality, every church has a, a spirit about it, and certain things that, it, that that individual church battles with. I can tell you that one of the things our church battles with is foolish questions and strifes. And I don't mean people getting upset with one another. They're not. They get along very, actually very well. But I mean, there is such a tendency for them to be sidetracked into political strifes. Part of that, I think, is probably living in Madison and we're set up against a culture and a political system that is contrary to God. But I have to remind them constantly, and I have to remind myself constantly, our job as Christians here is not to fight for the political right, not for the conservative in 
the political office, not for the Republican Party. That is not our job. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. Are, are, are we going to vote? Yes. Am I going to contact my representatives and let them know, hey, don't do this. Recently, the Dane County Board uh, had a thing up where they wanted to take the Pledge of Allegiance and the word prayer out of the list of requirements of every board meeting. And I let our church know, listen, contact your, uh, your uh, supervisor in Dane County and let them know that's wrong. And I wrote a letter to all the uh, members of the board saying, listen, it would be unwise for you to do that. Why would you spit in God's face like that, right? They ended up, they left the Pledge of Allegiance, but they took the requirement for prayer out of every uh, board meeting. So listen, I'm not saying we don't get involved at all politically. I'm saying we have to remind people, don't get involved in things that gender strifes. It's not about us going and trying to get our candidates in, in, in office so that then America will be turned around. That's not the answer. The answer is for us to fall on our face before God, pray, seek his face, witness, and ask God to do a work, and God will put the right people in. And by the way, I think he might even be doing that in some cases. I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. But I, I would say our church battles with that, and I know other churches do as well. Probably not as much as we do, but I constantly have to be reminding people, stay off the Internet. Stay away from the conspiracy theory websites. Get off of there and focus on the Word of God. What is your responsibility as a Christian? God's put me there as a pastor to remind them of that. Now look at what the verse says in verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Here's a passage of scripture that more than likely is talking a lot about unsaved people, but I believe it can also be applied to people who are saved and have gotten themselves into a mess by getting involved in false doctrines. And the servant of the Lord, his job is not to strive with them, to argue with them, to convince them with strong arguments, and to beat them over the head with facts. In Madison, that makes no difference. But rather, it's to, in gentleness and meekness, give them the truth. And then what are we looking for? according to those verses. We're not looking to overcome them with superior logic. We're looking for the Holy Spirit of God to grant them repentance. If I understand the word repentance, and I am no scholar on original languages, but if I understand the word repentance, it carries with it a very strong indication that when God convinces me of the truth, my mind then begins to be changed and I cease to think according to man's wisdom, and I, begin to see, and I begin to think according to God's wisdom. That, I believe, is what repentance is, that God awakens me and convinces me I've been wrong. My thinking and my actions, therefore, have been wrong. I need to do it God's way. And I begin to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word. That's repentance. That is something that only God can give, whether we're talking about a lost soul or whether we're talking about somebody who's saved and just into false doctrine, that God needs to grant them repentance. And that's why I need to be preaching the word of God and feeding them. Because if they never hear the truth, if they're not presented with the word of God, the Holy Spirit cannot grant them repentance. Because repentance is based on not thinking my way, but God's way, which comes from the word. 
So I need to be giving them the word so that God can grant them repentance. And by the way, that's his job, not mine. It's not my great ability to proclaim the truth. It's in God's ability to change hearts. Let me lead you then to the second part of our responsibility, right? The first one is to feed the flock of God. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, he also says taking the oversight thereof. And so I would say this, the secondary responsibility of the way to find success in the pastorate is to oversee God's people, to oversee them. In other words, within the realm of the church, somebody needs to be in charge. Somebody needs to be the one that God has given to lead the church. Now, that has been abused by some to the point where they feel that, well, then it's my job to make sure that everybody always does right, whether it's in their home, whether it's in their workplace, whether it's here or there. My job is I'm the pastor, and bless God, if you're going to do anything, if you're going to buy a car, you better come see me because I can learn from God what will what his will is for you on what car to buy. And believe me, I've heard all the stories you can imagine. That's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about within the context of the local church, somebody needs to lead. Somebody needs to be the one that God says, I want you to guide the people, not push them, not whip them into submission, but to lead them, to say, this is the way we need to go. Let's follow God and his word. That's overseeing. That's taking leadership in the church. Why does God want that? Because God desires order in all things. God desires order. Do you remember as Paul was writing to the Corinthian church in chapter 14 and verse 40? Do you remember what he said, how he ended that chapter? He said, let all things be done decently and in order. Do you remember the context of that verse? He was giving them instructions on how they were to speak in tongues in the church. Because remember, they had struggles with that, didn't they? And so he said, all right, listen, if you're going to speak in tongues, here's how it needs to be. Not more than two or three. There must be an interpreter, no women. And it needs to be in course, not everybody at once, one at a time, this way, that way. And then he ends that chapter with, let all things be done decently and in order. You know what he was doing? He was taking the oversight. He was saying somebody needs to lead because if they don't, Satan will get involved and it will just, it will become a mess. You see, somebody needs to lead because God desires order. May I remind you of Moses as Moses was about to pass off the scene in Numbers 27, as God gave him instructions that he was going to ascend up to the mount and there God would take him home. You remember what Moses' prayer was? He said, Lord, would you raise up a man to be over the people? And what was the reasoning that Moses gave? That they not be as sheep without a shepherd. Moses had led those people long enough. He understood if they don't have a leader, someone to go in before them and come out before them, then they will go astray. By the way, after Joshua, did anybody stand up as the leader? And the answer is no. And what happened to the people? The book of Judges. Every man did that which was right, in his own eyes. You see, people need someone to oversee, not to be a lord, not to command that, boy, you better kiss my big toe, because after all, I'm the grand poobah. No, 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 no. But somebody to lead, somebody to gently and carefully, with tenderness and meekness, 
lead them to the truth and what the word of God says. And by the way, sometimes that does mean to be harsh. Moses was. But they need someone to oversee because God desires order and also because sheep need a shepherd. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be brief here in these next couple of verses. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Notice it says, they watch for your souls. I believe this verse is talking about elders or pastors. And that the writer of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, I don't really know, but whoever it was that God led them to remind these Hebrew Christians that, listen, there are some who have the rule over you. Obey them. Follow them. Why? Because they watch for your souls. That word watch in English, as in Old English, it's the idea of guarding, keeping. It's something that you view as precious, therefore you're going to protect it. That's watching. And the job of these leaders is to watch for your souls. It matters to them whether or not you do right. It matters to them whether or not as you stand before the judgment seat, if it goes well for you or, or goes poor for you, it matters to them. And friends, that's our job as pastors because people need a shepherd even if it is only an under-shepherd. And then let me give you the last two reasons why we need to oversee First, uh, the, I should say third, because God's people need an example. It's referenced in 1 Peter uh, 5, what we're reading here, that not being lords over God's heritage, but in samples. But also, may I remind you that in Titus 2, we already read the verse, verse number 7, the apostle says to Titus, he says, you need to set them a good example with your life. And people need an example. You can change people's lives by setting a good example. My brother, one of my older brothers who's a pastor in the state, I won't tell you which one, but one of my older brothers who's a pastor in the state, I remember when he was a newly married man, he's quite a bit older than I am, and I would go and stay with him. He was very worldly in his young married days. He would watch movies that were inappropriate. I remember being at his house and watching movies with him that were inappropriate. He would say things and reference things that were not good for a young man at the age that I was to hear, and uh, not a great example to me, yet he was a churchgoer and involved in his local independent Baptist church. And then I remember that God began to work on his heart, and he tells a story that God began to wake him up about, at about 2 in the morning every night consistently for around a year, and God would just deal with him. And he'd sit at the kitchen table, open up the word of God, and God began to convict him greatly. He's a pastor now. But I watched God change his life. As a young teenage boy, looking at my older brother, I watched God change him. And I cannot tell you the impact that had on my life. A big impact to watch my brother change. You see, I needed an example. All God's people need a good example. And that's why God gives overseers. Let me give you the last reason. Because man's tendency is to revert to foolishness. Titus chapter number three. Look there with me if you would, and then we'll close. Titus 
chapter number 3. Man's tendency is to revert to foolishness. Titus 3 and verse 1, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Our people in Madison need that. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. What was Paul saying to Titus? People are going to have a tendency to get involved in these genealogies and these foolish questions, these strifes. Remind them, don't do it. And if somebody is a heretic, that means somebody who tries to get everybody to follow them off in another direction. You reprove them or admonish them one time. If they will not hear you the first time, you admonish them a second time. But if they will not hear after that second time, reject them. Kick them out. Get rid of them. You see, somebody had to be a leader to say, Brother so-and-so, you need to straighten that out. The doctrine you're preaching is wrong. Now, if you don't straighten it out, we'll kick you out. We want you to stay. But if you teach false doctrine around here, you're out. And you give him two opportunities. But that second time, if he does it again, kick him out. See, somebody has to be the leader. Somebody has to oversee. Because God's people will have a tendency to revert to foolishness. And somebody has to remind them of what God's word says. As we close, what does success in the pastorate look like? Well, feeding the flock of God and overseeing them. And then it looks like one day, as Peter said it, when the chief shepherd shall appear to receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. And I want to remind each and every one of you that the chief shepherd will appear. And someday you'll stand before him and give an account for the ministry that he gives you. How will it go for you? Will you be successful?